Welcome to Novara Live. I'm Michael Walker. It's a Friday evening, and because he's back from a well-earned break in Malta, I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Michael. I've missed you. Uh, I had the symptoms of a mystery illness, uh, which has just been diagnosed. It was called Walker Withdrawal Syndrome. And suddenly I feel so much better talking to you, Michael. That is the cure. The cure for Walker, Walker, Walker Withdrawal Syndrome is to come on Navarra Live. So you've done the right thing. Um, we have some big stories for you tonight. Dan Wooten has been dropped from one of his media gigs in the wake of the shocking allegations against him. More record-breaking climate news. We'll be speaking to a climate scientist about how worried we should be about the oceans. They're hotter than ever. And GB News decide to storm the offices of Greenpeace. Some bizarre footage we'll show you later. Let's go straight to our first story. Sadiq Khan has taken a lot of flack for his ULEZ scheme since the Uxbridge by-election, and he's now come up with a response. Expanding ULEZ was a difficult decision for me to take, but it was the right one. And I remain committed to seeing it through. We've already seen the benefits of ULEZ with cleaner air in central London and inner London. This is not the time to step back, delay, or water down vital green policies like ULEZ, and I'm not prepared to do so. But I've continued to listen to the concerns that some Londoners have voiced of what expanding the ULEZ will mean for them during a growing cost of living crisis. As may, it's my duty to listen, and that's what I've been doing. It's why I announced in January a 110 million pound scrappage and retrofit scheme to support people, businesses, and charities. It's why I announced in June that small businesses and everyone in receipt of child benefit would be eligible for support. And it's why I'm now announcing another major expansion to the scheme with an extra 50 million pounds of funding from City Hall, making it the most generous in the UK without a penny of support from the government. This means all Londoners with non-compliant cars and motorbikes will be able to get financial support to switch to greener, less polluting vehicles. It means businesses can get 7,000 pounds scrap a van up from 5,000. And it means we can provide extra support to disabled Londoners, charities, and those retrofitting their vans. So thanks to this announcement, all Londoners will be able to apply for £2,000 from a scrappage scheme if their cars are non-ULEZ compliant before the scheme was only available to drivers on low incomes or people in receipt of child benefit. Meanwhile, um, the amount available to small businesses and charities for scrapping non-compliant vans has gone from £5,000 to £7,000. Um, the expansion is being paid for by going into City Hall reserves. Aaron, um, it seemed clear that Sadiq Khan would have to come up with something along these lines. I suppose if you're someone who's very much opposed to ULEZ expansion because you think it's going to cost you money, you would say that two grand isn't really going to be enough to buy you a decent ULEZ compliant car. I mean, how, how much difference will this make, do you think? I mean, it possibly could. It possibly could. I mean, look, to be clear to, to people watching and listening, the vehicles that are really hit by ULEZ are fundamentally vans and diesel vehicles. Almost all petrol cars um, won't have to pay a penny. I think you're, you're really going back to the early 2000s and before. You know, you're looking at really a 20-year-old petrol vehicle or older that um, wouldn't be ULEZ compliant. Realistically, you can find a second-hand hatchback, which would mean you don't have to pay the charge. 
you probably can find that for £2,000 in a car auction if you're really looking hard. You couldn't a year or two ago, but you know the price of secondhand cars have fallen. When it comes to vans, um, different story, but of course, a bit more money is involved there. So I think it's extraordinarily generous, Michael. You know, I was, was going to make a frivolous point about how the music of that social video reminded me of American Psycho, you know? I live in the American Gardens building on 80 West, 81st West Street. You know, it's morning routine. And I'm thinking of Sadiq Khan's morning skincare routine. It's the first thing that came to mind. Such a frivolous, fatuous thing for such an important uh, topic. But the actual substance of what he's talking about, £110 million, is a direct transfer of public money to effectively you know, decarbonize private transit and create incentives for private consumers to stop using vehicles which not only pollute um, and use fossil fuels to an extraordinary extent, but also because we're focusing here primarily on diesel vehicles to reduce carbon monoxide um, emissions and, of course, create much better air quality. I think I think that's a really, it's actually become now a very radical, it always was very radical, this is why it's attracted the dissent that it has, but it's become, I think, a real, sort of a really radical proposal. And the fact that Sadiq Khan, I think actually, Michael, let's wind this back a bit. I think this is the exact kind of political battle Sadiq Khan probably would have liked, actually. It's a policy which is is, is supported by, you know, if we look at the polling, a plurality of, of Londoners. Uh, yes, it has people who are upset about it, but bear in mind it's not been implemented yet. I think a lot of that is really a misunderstanding about how many people will be impacted. I think it's a really good use of taxpayer money. You know, I think alongside what he's doing with free school meals as well. I mean, these are the kinds of interventions which aren't revolutionary. You know, they're not Corbynism. You know, we're not talking about public ownership of stuff, which I would like to see too. But it's the kind of policy you'd want to see from a, you know, quote unquote, sensible centrist Labour Party. The fact that that has become so unpalatable and, you know, arguably dangerous to some people around Keir Starmer, I'm not going to say Keir Starmer, some people around him, and they're pushing back against him, I think should be concerning because this is really a common sense policy about creating not just a better sets of um, environmental conditions from a climate perspective in, in London, and you know, like I said, trying to reduce those CO2 emissions, but just about quality of life. You know, if you go on Monocle magazine or The Economist or, you know, British cities very rarely feature in those lists for the, the, the top cities for quality of life. And poor air pollution in London, Manchester, other places too, is one very easy thing to fix. It takes money. It's being done here. Yeah, cheaper public transport would also help, wouldn't it? That's, Vienna always comes top, as I always say. Loads and loads of social housing. Very, very cheap public transport. We should be doing the same. Um, as you said there, Aaron Sadiq Khan, somewhat isolated in the Labour Party. Keir Starmer um, really having a go at him saying he's a politician with unpopular policies that we have to get rid of. Um, he does, though, Sadiq Khan, have strong allies in the form of other city mayors. So the mayors of Oslo, Montreal and Milan have told The Guardian they back Khan's ULES plan. And the article also has some interesting quotes from the mayors about how they navigated opposition to clean air schemes. Um, Mayor of Oslo, Raymond Johansson, banned diesel cars on days with high pollution and introduced a toll on cars entering the city. He told The Guardian this, the toll ring revenue in Oslo is almost entirely used for public transport infrastructure investments. In 2019, Oslo introduced more toll booths. This happened in several cities and led to the birth of a new single-issue political party, the People's Party Against Road Tolls. In the 2019 local election, the party won three seats in the city parliament. In reality, most inhabitants experienced that their expenses were reduced. And in the polls for the upcoming election in September, the party has very little support. 
Johansson said that he sees Khan's Ulez as a sign of bold leadership and an inspiration to other cities. He added this, If you really want to tackle poor air quality, you need to introduce measures that are substantial enough to make a real difference, even if it meets resistance from parts of the city. A very different line from Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer was saying, if if the opposition could attack you for it, get rid of it. Um, So this, to me, seems like a bit more of a a wise um, comment to make on the controversy. Um, The mayor of Montreal, um, she's Valerie Plunt. She runs a city where air quality has high salience due to smoke from nearby wildfires. And she has implemented various measures to reduce car use. She told The Guardian, this, whenever car usage, parking or any car-related infrastructure is reduced, there is some kind of opposition to the proposed changes in the status quo. But I became mayor by committing to Montrealers that our administration would make our city more green, sustainable, inclusive and on a human scale, which requires major transformations. And in my experience, in the majority of cases, the opposition to these changes dissipates when citizens and businesses are made aware of the tangible benefits of public policies. Very interesting there. It's not always, I think, going to be that they're going to be made aware by a great publicity campaign, but they'll be made aware by the fact that when it's introduced, everyone says, oh, actually, the city is a nicer place to live now. I think that was often the case of low traffic neighbourhoods. Plant says she takes inspiration from London's ultra low emissions zone and wants to introduce one in Montreal. Um, The article also quotes Milan's mayor giving Khan support. So he said, this is Giuseppe Sala. We have been inspired by the work done in London to support the scheme's delivery, such as the scrappage scheme and wider investment in public transport. And we'll look at the policy to help inform part of Milan's own strategy to protect residents' health, as well as reduce the number of polluting vehicles on our streets. Aaron, I think all of these, I suppose, highlight similar points. You know, one, if you're going to introduce this kind of tax on on road users, make sure it's clear where the money is going. Is it going to increase um, the the quality of public transport? You've also got this idea of sort of introduce it first and then people will get used to it afterwards. Uh, one thing that's inter- sort of interested me over the past couple of weeks is the extent to which Rishi Sunak seems to be really trying to make car driving uh, a sort of wedge issue when it comes to general elections. But it happens to be the case that most sort of anti-car policies, and there are, anti- I, I generally support anti-car policies, they are in big cities where people tend to support anti-car policies. So it feels almost like they're trying to appeal to people outside of cities and get them to vote in national elections on the basis of policies which apply to places they don't live. So they're saying, well, vote Tory because in London, um, a popular Labour mayor is, is implementing anti-car policies which only apply to Londoners, and you should vote for us as the National Conservative Party, even if you're never affected by this London policy. It seems strange to me. It is a strange policy, Michael. And, you know, it operates on the basis of a kind of pastiche understanding of the electorate. There was a great piece by Aditya Chakraborty in The Guardian recently, Michael. I don't know if you saw this thing, it was what, two days ago? Maybe yesterday. And it was saying, look, nobody in the media, this is so, this is so funny, Michael. Nobody in the media saw the Tories winning um, in Uxbridge. Nobody in the media. Nobody, 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 nobody. And the exact same people who didn't foresee the Tories winning, now universities saying, well, of course, of course, it's because of you, Les. We all knew that. Well, if you knew that, why were you saying that Labour were going to win Uxbridge if it was so obvious to you? This kind of vault first. Oh, we, of course we know this. Wrong. Oh, well, of course we know the reason why that happened. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a mockery. It's a mockery. Um, and, you know, it's interesting seeing this kind of herd mentality go towards this. Now, with the Tories, you understand why they do it, of course. There's a there's a Hail Mary policy issue here, which, you know, they think they can probably prize back several dozen constituencies at the next general election, which they stand to lose right now on the basis of, 
of, of this stuff. You know, in, in local elections, for instance, in Oxford, it was a similar issue, a big wedge, wedge issue. But like you say, I mean, it's, it's hard to use this as a wedge issue in those places, i.e. cities, where actually there's really high um, desire and political trust and political capital to actually do quite brave things like LTNs, ULEs um, and whatnot. So it is a it is a strange one. I just find that the, the media response even more bizarre still, though, Michael. Really, because I think they're really letting the Tories off the hook by saying, "Yes, it's about ULEs." You know, and Adich Chakraborty in his piece, he says, "We well, you know what." You know what Labour could learn from here? The Tories let their membership choose their candidate. How about that? It was a local guy. You know, it was a local guy. It was a local business person who had a really good understanding of the area. And while the Labour candidate was walking around like he was already, you know, the number 10 strategy unit working in the cabinet for kids, summer government, this dude was walking around in a pair of jeans and drinking pints of lager. He seems normal, right? That's something to think about. We're not talking about the optics of Brexit. We've forgotten all about that, haven't we? The idea of highly local, communitarian-led uh, campaigns in the face of an overreaching national government or national policy agenda. That's one of the reasons why Uxbridge was won by the Tories, as much as you know, opposition to ULEDs. In fact, the two really interface with one another. So it's frustrating. It's deeply frustrating, Michael. And I, I think one of the strangest things of all is, you know, Labour's response to it. You know, Now, the Tories have an awful night. You know, they start the night with three seats. They end up with one. And they're going, yes, this is fantastic. You know, they're getting out the champagne. Labour win a seat with one of the biggest swings in political history. I think it's the biggest swing to Labour since the Second World War. And there are recriminations and civil war, and they're attacking one of their own, one of their own politicians, arguably the most successful Labour politician alongside Andy Burnham since the 2010 general election. It defies belief. Uh, and I think it tells you a lot about the centre-left and the centre-right in this country. Equally, Michael, again, going back to this idea of this cliche of, you know, the everyman blue-collar worker doesn't have any time for this green nonsense. Next door in Ealing, in Ealing, there's a Labour council that wants to basically, um, I, as I understand it, there's a brownfield site. It used to be sports facilities. They basically want to get those facilities up and going again, a leisure centre and whatnot, cricket nets, I think. And there's a massive popular backlash by the local community because this brownfield site has actually become an incredibly rich source of local biodiversity, from birds to lichens and moths and plants and wildflowers. Uh, interesting side note, you know, actually many brownfield sites have more biodiversity than the so-called greenfield sites of the Greenbelt. We'll forget about that for one moment. But what that tells us actually is that conservation, the environment, local community, beauty, nature, these are things that don't necessarily need to be left-coded. These are things that don't necessarily need to be the possession or, or the plaything of the left, nor should we want them to be. These are things that actually bring people together. And I think, um, I think cleaner air is one of those things. You know, Nobody wants their child or grandchild to be an asthmatic or wheezing as they walk on the way to school, having to pull out their inhaler. Nobody wants that. It doesn't matter if you vote for Labour or the Tories, the Lib Dems or Green or UKIP or none of the above. It doesn't matter. Uh, and I think clean air is one of those policies. So it's great that Sadiq Khan's going full throttle on this. And frankly, like I said at the start, I think this is an optimal, an ideal political clash for somebody like Sadiq Khan to gain credibility, political capital, perhaps with people to his left, but also people who aren't necessarily that political and don't really think about things very much. He, he's, he's taking on a battle here, which I actually think in several years' time might 
might pay real political dividends for him. Straight on to our next story. 2023 has been a record-breaking year when it comes to global average temperatures. The 6th of July was the hottest day on record. Before that, we had the hottest June on record, and it's just been confirmed that we had the hottest July. And today, we've learned of another record we've surpassed. Average global ocean temperatures have just reached their highest recorded temperature ever, breaking the previous high of 20.96 degrees Celsius, which was reached in 2016. Scientists also warn they are likely to rise further. That's because average ocean temperatures are usually highest in March. So we've seen the highest ever recorded daily temperature far outside of what's supposed to be the hottest month. This should be very concerning to us all. And often, and when we get worrying news on the climate, we speak to climate scientist Dr. Ella Gilbert. And I spoke to her again today. I began by asking why we should care if the oceans are getting warmer. So the ocean as a whole is super important for the climate. It absorbs 90% of human-caused heat and about a quarter of the extra CO2 we're pumping into the atmosphere. also produces about half of our oxygen. So it's really crucial for life on Earth, essentially. The problem is that when you have warmer ocean temperatures, then it's less able to absorb CO2. So colder temperatures are much better at absorbing anything, but in this case, CO2. So having a warmer ocean means less CO2 will be taken up by the ocean and more is left in the atmosphere to do more warming. So it does sort of start to have a reinforcing effect. The other thing to remember is that this is the surface temperature we're talking about, but at the same time, we're seeing quite a lot of increases in ocean heat at depth. So it's not just the surface that we're worried about. If we've got lots more heat at um, very deep depths, then that can also affect how much greenhouse gases, but also heat is absorbed by the ocean. With all the extreme weather events this year, we've been talking about this relationship between El Nino and climate change. I mean, presumably that applies also to, to the oceans, does it? We're seeing this spike now because we're in an El Nino period, but there is this background of ever warming climates, which means that this El Nino is, is more extreme than, than the usual one. Exactly. I mean, El Nino is a really important reason that the global average sea surface temperature has been exceeded as a record, because El Nino describes basically patterns of sea surface temperatures that are especially warm or cold. So having very warm, um, having an El Nino basically means that you're more likely to have globally warmer sea surface temperatures. So whilst this is an important piece of the puzzle. We are also seeing this superimposed on top of the ongoing background trend towards much higher temperatures induced by climate change. And one of the more, I suppose, counterintuitive explanations for why we're seeing warmer oceans is because of a regulation which has meant the shipping industry now emits less particulates. Now, particulates sort of the kind of pollution that we don't want to breathe in, but does have an effect of blocking some of the sun from the surface of the earth. So either you know, land or sea or whatever. Has our policy backfired? <laughs> I think this just highlights the importance of all these little intricate processes that are going on in our, our system that we don't always understand the, the full cascade of consequences. I mean, you can change the amount of particulates and that will have an impact on clouds, for example, which I presume is what you're referring to. And then that changes the amount of energy that is reached at the surface, whether that's at the ocean or land. Um, but in here, it, it would mean that there's less solar radiation um, reaching the surface if you have more clouds and if you have more particulates, you have more clouds. There's so much going on in our climate system and pulling apart all of these different things um, makes, when we do something like implement a policy like that, 
we don't necessarily know what the consequences are going to be. The best thing to do is to not mess with things in the first place. I want to bring up a tweet. Um, something you tweeted this week that scared me. Um, and I want your explanation of it. I had a quick go at comparing July's average Antarctic sea ice extent to the newly released FOGT et al. reconstruction from the 19, from 1905 to 2020. And then you said July 2023 20, is that black cross way down there on the bottom right corner. So this is another climate anomaly. We've seen so many of these graphs this year. Um, you know, I, I hear people on the right sort of describe this as alarmism. I mean, I don't, it's a graph, right? You can you can see it. This is facts. Um, but can you explain to me and to our audience what this means and and why this seemed so notable to you? Antarctic sea ice has been doing some pretty crazy stuff this year, particularly. So it had a record minimum extent in February, and since then it hasn't really recovered. So we've just seen an absolutely mad uh, negative anomaly. So we're seeing two and a half million square kilometers worth of sea ice is missing essentially from the Antarctic. Um, if that was a country, it'd be the 10th largest in the world, it's about the size of Algeria. So it's a huge amount of ocean that's exposed in comparison to where it would normally be. And one of the, it's been doing the rounds, at least on climate Twitter, <laughs> because this is supposedly such a rare event that it might be occurring you know, once in every seven and a half million years. This is one statistic that's been floating around quite a lot. But it's really hard to know exactly how that stacks up because we don't really have that many observations. We only have 40 years worth of satellite observations of sea ice in the Antarctic. So it's hard to say with any degree of certainty whether July 2023 is like a big negative anomaly or whether it's like so unprecedented that it is a one in a seven and a half million year event. So what I was trying to do there is using this slightly longer data set, which is reconstructed from other sources, is to try and put it into the context of the last century rather than just the last 40 years. And the take home message is that what we're seeing at the moment is truly exceptional. It is something we have never seen before in the record. It's unlikely to have happened uh, any time in the last um, century. And it's very, very likely completely outside of the bounds of what is considered normal for Antarctic sea ice. And this is almost certainly, to my mind, uh, related to climate change. When I see sort of these exceptional events going on in either the Antarctic or the Arctic, I mean, the alarm bells that ring is, are we seeing a tipping point? Is is the Antarctic or the Arctic going to suddenly collapse and then the heat won't get reflected back into the atmosphere and the world will be even hotter and you'll get this terrible feedback loop and the sea levels will rise and you know i'm thinking day after tomorrow here i mean are we close to seeing some sort of apocalyptic tipping point these all seem like very bad signs to me <laughs> i certainly hope we're not close to the day after tomorrow i think the thing about lots of tipping points is that they're all happening at different scales so the ones that seem really catastrophic like the sort of 10 meters of sea level rise type tipping points they are way further down the line we may have committed to them already we don't know but they are not going to have their effects felt until much further down the line because of how long it takes for ice to melt. Things like sea ice are much more immediate, but I'm I'm still not completely sold on the fact that, for especially summer sea ice, especially in the Arctic as well, um, I'm not really sold on the fact that it's a tipping point because as soon as the temperatures, well, if the temperatures come back down to freezing temperatures again, the sea ice can expand again. It's not necessarily like a you push it beyond a certain point and 
after that, the change is irreversible, um, which is, of course, the definition of a tipping point. It's a point beyond which change becomes irreversible and you can't go back. So sea ice is a funny one. It's vitally important. It is really related to huge amounts of positive feedback effects where they reinforce themselves and make the change worse. But I'm not 100% sold on the fact that they are a tipping point. And undoubtedly, there are many other tipping points in our climate system we need to worry about. Things like Amazon dieback, the loss of ice sheets. But sea ice itself is a very worrying climate indicator. It's a very important source of feedback effects. But I'm not 100% certain that it's a tipping point. And I want to talk about politics, I suppose. Uh, from your perspective as a climate scientist, you've been looking at all these records broken um, this summer. Well, I know it's summer for us. I don't think it's summer in the Antarctic. But all of these these records being broken in the past few months. Um, at the same time, we're having a big old political row in the UK, at least, where Rishi Sunak is saying we're going to, you know, we're going to slow down on this net zero stuff. It's costing people too much money. I mean, how are you looking on the state of, of political discourse in the UK right now? Depends how diplomatic I'm being. I think we are very, very certain that the science is really clear. We have to move away from fossil fuels. We have to do everything that we can to reduce our emissions. And net zero policies are essential if we're going to get there. We need to dramatically change the way we do things. And for example, the granting of new oil and gas licenses is doing the exact opposite of what we need to do because we need to completely eliminate fossil fuels eventually from our lives. And the science is really clear on that. We are rapidly moving towards a future we do not want to experience. And the window for action is rapidly narrowing. And we need, I think the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is like the consensus of climate scientists, said uh, it, the window is rapidly narrowing to secure a safe and livable climate for all, which is a pretty damning indictment. Straight on to our next story, very much related. GB News are outraged at Greenpeace activists doing a banner drop at Rishi Sunak's Yorkshire home. And in response, one of their journalists, he's called Ben Leo, has stormed Greenpeace's London office. Who thinks Sunak's house invasion was a good idea? Anyone? What team do you guys work in? Are you press? Marketing, who, who's the gigabrain that invented that idea today? And also, why don't you do it in China? Go to President Xi Ping's house. Do you think you get the same reception? No? No answers. Nothing to say, just smirks. Just sullen smirks. You're paid 100 grand a year for ideas like that. Are you going to apologise for, for what you've done what today? What should I apologise for? For turning up at uh, not just a Prime Minister's a house, a, pro a private man's home it where he lives with his family. It doesn't you matter. Speak, Does it? I will answer your speak. question. Speak. Yeah. Defend it. Yeah, it was a peaceful protest, and the Prime Minister has allowed hundreds of new oil and gas licences. So you think it's justified turning up to a man's private home where he lives with his family because he's approved oil and gas licences? He wasn't there. That was a matter of national news. We checked before going. We made sure there was nobody there. It was planned with utmost care, with care for security. He wasn't there. We knocked on the door. First, there was no answer. He knocks on the door, so he jumps on his roof. Is that right? He knocked on the door to identify who we were. Are you going to apologise? No, I'm not going to apologise. We held him to account for a decision that he has backed, which is a disastrous decision. Do you know what percent of global emissions the UK is responsible for? 
Um, you must do. You're paid 100, 100k a year, so you must know. I mean, it's around 1%, 2%. All right, okay. So why aren't you going to China, to Xi Ping's palace, and doing this? We have an enormous this? campaigning organisation in China. Greenpeace are really present in China. We do tonnes of work there. Do some research. Aren't you a bunch of hypocrites? Is that right? Is that what's going why? on there? What's happened now? Yeah, what's happened? Why, why would that come up? Because you're, you're choosing to make a point here in the UK that somehow this country is doing not doing uh, its fair share I to reduce the emissions. The was really into painting the UK as a global leader. The UK has a massive... It is on carbon emissions. It's a massive... 40 percent reduction over the past two decades that you guys think is acceptable and you guys think it's acceptable to invade a private man's family home which is disgusting i can see why gb news made the decision to do that because it would have been difficult for greenpeace to say we haven't invited you and get out because obviously greenpeace climbed on rishi sunak's roof without having permission i did think that the green steve green greenpeace staff sorry comported themselves very well i thought those were very effective answers from the joint directors of Greenpeace UK, especially on China. Now, we hear this so often. You've got people say, oh, Britain is only 1% of, of global emissions. Why should we bother to reduce them? Well, because we're less than 1% of the population as well, right? If you say no one who's not in a huge country should do anything for climate, um, then I don't think that's a way to, to build any kind of global cooperation on this. And it would backfire. I mean, it's kind of an argument to say that we should have no morality whatsoever because I'm just one person. Who cares what I do? I'm just one person, not going to have that much of an impact. I might as well do whatever the hell I want. I mean, maybe that is the ethical code by which people who work for GP News live by, but I don't think it's one that we should be encouraging everyone else to. Aaron, what did you make of that that reporting sort of... I mean, I know GP News seem very pleased um, with what they got out of it, but I mean, what did you make of it? It wasn't reporting. It wasn't reporting. It was, direct, it was, it was a direct action. What Greenpeace did was a direct action. What they've done is a direct action. You know, and I... You know, and like you say, right, right at the top there, Michael. Well, if Greenpeace can, you know, sort of effectively, it was aggravated trespass. You're asked to leave, you stay there, which is a criminal offence, by the way. Uh, I'm not suggesting that happened there yesterday, but it, you know, it, it, yeah, it's tantamount to aggravated trespass. And GB News's line would have been, well, they did it, so why can't we? That's fine. They're a campaigning organisation. You're the media. It's a tacit recognition that you're also a campaigning organisation, right? Um, it didn't strike me as journalism. If Navarra Media went into a right-wing think tank's offices in central London and behaved like that, we would be cancelled, we would be um, lambasted, derided, mocked by every politician from every major party and every TV network and every single newspaper. We would be. We would be. Okay? That's the first thing. Secondly, Michael, on the point of China, so babyish. Grow up. Grow up. This whole thing of, oh, well, we're only one country, 1% of the global population. This is called the collective action problem. Why should I do something if everybody else isn't going to do it? Okay? And I won't make any difference. Well, this is like saying, why should you vote? You're one of 45 million people that can vote in a general election. Why would you vote? What's the, what's the rational reason to vote? Why would you do it? One vote is not going to make any difference. No constituency is going to be decided by a single vote. Maybe there's a record of it somewhere, but it's not a single vote, I don't think. You know, maybe the tens of votes, but not a single vote. So why bother? There is no, given that logic, rational explanation or reason or motive to vote. But people do all the time. Tens of millions of people vote every year, practically. Whether it's local elections or, you know, uh, assembly elections or general elections or, you know, previously European elections. People vote all the time. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, it's because people feel there's an obligation to do the right thing. And it's the same with regards to climate change. We should pull our weight. Now, we then move on to an argument of, is China pulling its weight? Well, right now, China has um, generation coming from solar in regards to 
coal of a ratio about two to one. Now, that might not sound like much, but China's solar capacity is increasing by around 33% every year. It is a global leader in solar, wind, nuclear, geothermal, storage, everything. It's blowing everyone out of the water, everyone. It's blowing often in terms of yearly um, additional capacity. It's often blowing out the EU and the US combined, okay, in creating new capacity for wind and solar, uh, particularly wind. So it's pretty obvious China is actually doing pretty well. There was a report out last month how actually with regards to renewables, it was five years ahead of schedule. Now, I'm not here to kiss the butt of Xi Jinping or China. That's irrelevant. The facts are the facts. When it comes to nuclear, renewable, and decarbonizing, they're doing remarkably well. And the idea that, why don't you go protest in Xi Jinping's house? First of all, China's not a democracy, you nimwit. Okay? So generally speaking, protest only works in countries where politicians feel they have to be answerable to the electorate. That's a good thing. You can't, on the one hand, say that China's this authoritarian, dictatorial state. Nobody has the right to protest. And then say, hey, why don't you go protest in China? It doesn't make any sense. Please try and get more than 10 of those brain cells buzzing at any one point. And then we go back to last week. You might remember this story, Michael. You had Ian Duncan Smith going on the TV saying, we have a huge problem, people. We have a huge problem. China's going to make electric vehicles too cheap. That's the problem. They're too good at creating mass market, low carbon vehicles. They're too good. We're going to have too many of them. We're going to be reliable on their technology. So which is it? Is China this failure, this carbon bad guy? And apparently people should do a direct action at Xi Jinping's house, well, the Forbidden Palace, presumably, in Beijing. Good luck with that one. Or is, is China producing too many electric vehicles too quickly? And it's going to capture too much of the market. You know, I really do feel sorry for conservatives in this country, Michael, because on issue after issue after issue, they talk complete fucking nonsense. They say things which are wildly contrasting and contradictory from day to day, not even day to day. New cycle to new cycle, eight-hour periods. They can say things which are diametrically opposed. How is it possible to hold so many contradictions in one brain? You know, this is a, this is a topic for a future show, perhaps. The issue of, of China and, and climate is super interesting. I mean, as far as I understand it, they do now have per capita emissions which are higher than the UK, even if you sort of take into account the fact that they're exporting lots of those emissions in the sense that you know, they make manufacturing goods that we then might import. That's mainly because their electricity grid is still predominantly reliant on coal. So that's the sort of bad element of China when it comes to climate change. The good element is that they have, as you say, Aaron, massively increased capacity when it comes to renewables and massively reduced the price of renewables, which actually helps everyone else um, in terms of rolling out solar and wind because it's the, the mass production in China and the economies of scale that have made it affordable for everyone else. We are potentially, though, um, speaking at a level which is... A little bit too sophisticated for Ben Leo, who was the journalist who stormed Greenpeace's offices. We've been having somewhat of a, a nuanced debate here about climate responsibility. Ben Leo um, isn't a particularly nuanced guy. Um, in fact, he probably should have hung around at Greenpeace for a pretty basic lesson on climate change. Now, these are a selection of his tweets, all from the past years. This is not ancient history. Ben Leo, if you want to call all of Europe the North Atlantic and US regional, then okay. Climate change is a scam. You've been duped. So climate change is a scam. Then you've got here sharing a headline from The Guardian, climate crisis linked to heat wave fires undeniable, say scientists. And he says 97% of climate scientists agree they don't want to be defunded. So in response to how come if, if climate change isn't real, all climate scientists disagree with you, he thinks that's a, a conspiracy. And then you've got here, you can't tackle climate change. The climate changes and has done for thousands of years. 
Oh my God. And then extinction rebellion to stop harassing the public because no one's listening. Might it be due to the fact Arctic summer ice stopped melting a decade ago and more people than ever before don't believe the man-made climate change hysteria. More people than ever don't believe the man-made climate change hysteria. Now, a, a huge, huge majority of the public believe that climate change is happening. It's man-made and it's a serious problem. Now, there is this real backlash from the likes of GB News who are trying to polarize this issue in the same way that it is polarized in the United States. I think it's very troubling. Aaron, what does it tell us that someone with these views about climate change is, is now positioning himself as a leading reporter at GB News? Well, he's free, it's a free country. I mean, he, he, he can be a reporter if he wants to be. I'm not going to say that you have to have certain views in order to be a political reporter. But what's super interesting, Michael, is that the first tweet you showed there was from 2022. Okay? Um, so we're not talking about tweets from 10, 15 years ago. Outright climate denial, right? Climate change doesn't exist, or if it does exist, it's, it's merely um, a repeat of the kind of processes and fluctuations we've seen preceding you know, human civilization, which is true. The climate has always changed. The point with anthropogenic or human man-made climate change is the fact that it's happening incredibly quickly, and very soon we're going to see deeply traumatic and troubling consequences, if not for ourselves, then following generations. We're talking really in terms of decades and centuries, not, not millennia here, okay? And, and generally speaking, when you're talking about, you know, the Holocene, for instance, which is a certain geolog geological and sort of climactic systems period, you know, you're talking about, you know, 10, 15,000 years, we're talking this century of climate warming, you know, of, of a couple of degrees, rising sea levels, whatnot. Um, so, to be clear, climate change is real. Man-made climate change is real. Almost everybody agrees with that. And what's interesting, Michael, is the change in shtick from this guy, right? So in those tweets a year ago, he's saying, it doesn't exist. And now he's saying, well, we do our bit. Why don't you go protest in China? Which one is it? Which one is it? And that, for me, is really interesting. Because actually, that why don't you go protest in China is a de facto recognition that, okay, anthropogenic climate change is happening. Okay, there is climate warming. Okay, there will be political consequences. But rather than say, I was wrong about saying it's all a scam, a lot of these people are now saying, okay, it exists, but we can't do anything about it, sadly. So it's a new grift. There's a new climate denial grift in town, which is you move away from outright denial, which has absolutely no basis in scientific fact. Zero. And you move instead to a more political argument, which is, well, we're only 65 million people. We're 1% of the global uh, planet's CO2 emissions. So you know, what can you do? Only China and the US can really do anything, which, again, is kind of dumb, right? Because realistically, you know, Chinese per capita CO2 emissions are, are probably going to peak in the next 10 to 15 years. And then you're going to see growing CO2 emissions from you know, countries in sub-Saharan Africa because their populations will be growing. So the idea that even any one country can sort this out is clearly nonsensical. Clearly, you need a global coordinated effort, which, yes, includes countries like the UK. It is troubling that somebody like Kim is reporting on this issue. You know, we like fact-based reporting here at Navarra Media. I personally think it's good to have a very broad range of views in legacy media. I think what we have with just the BBC being 80 90% of news market share, I think that's bad. I think it's unhealthy. And I, I, think it's, I think it's legitimate for there to be climate skeptics in the public realm. Of course I do. But this chap is not interested in the scientific method. He's not interested in scientific, rational, reasonable deliberation and debate. He's clearly not open to persuasion. And the fact he's moved from one grift of outright denial to another where we can't do anything suggests he's more of a campaigner than a political journalist. Now, to an extent, lots of people in, in the media are, are campaigners. I'm a campaigner. You're a campaigner. We say that. Okay, I will say here on Navarra Media, what, 
It's uh, 6.45 here on Friday evening. I believe in climate change. I think that politically it's one of the most urgent pressing issues of the 21st century. Now, if this gentleman, this Ben guy at GB News, before that reporting said, I think climate change is a scam, by the way, here's my reporting, I think that's probably quite useful context. Straight on to our next story, very much related. It just so happened that on the day that Greenpeace did their banner drop at Rishi Sunak's home, I was booked in to appear on GB News. I was on the Michelle Dubry show up against former UKIP politician David Curtin. I do see why campaigners or organisations such as Greenpeace thinks it is worth taking actions which they know will be controversial because what they're protesting against is so extreme. It's also worth, I think, really emphasising that this is not some marginal view that these people at Greenpeace have. What they are doing is bringing to the attention of the British public what the UN General Secretary is saying, what the International Energy Agency is saying. And I think it is really important that everyone in Britain is aware that the leaders of these international organisations are completely outraged by Rishi Sunak's decision to open new oil and gas when we're currently in, as I say, the hottest summer on record. It's not their business, though, is it? What Rishi Sunak um, decides to do is domestic energy policy. Mm. That has got nothing to do... Well, well it will affect everyone, because the, climate change does affect everyone, yeah, but the, the, the heads of the UN sit there turning around saying it's things like, we don't have global warming, we have global boiling. And I sit there and I look and I think, you just sound a bit ridiculous and a bit hysterical, so I zone out a little bit. They've done this to get the attention, but it's wrong, because mm. they shouldn't be impinging on someone's private property. And if so many people, I'm waving my pen, I'm going to put my pen down, my mum would tell me off, that's bad manners. Uh, If so many people are so concerned, um, you're saying like loads of people concerned about this agenda, why do, for example, uh, the Green Party get pretty much nowhere uh, in things like elections if everyone is so passionate about the causes that you refer to? Well, I don't think anyone would, would, would claim that this is necessarily a majority opinion yet in the public. And why Greenpeace are taking actions such as this is because they want to make more of the public aware of the extreme action which Rishi Sunak has taken. And I think this also comes with an analysis of, of the media, right? So you're saying if people want to change policy, they can go get elected. Now, we do have a long history of civil disobedience in this country as a way to get your voice heard. We also have, and I have a very strong critique of the fact that so much of our media in this country is owned by very rich, wealthy people, which means that unless you have billionaire backers, one of the only ways to try and shape the media agenda is to take extreme controversial actions such as this. The only way to get in the headlines is to do something controversial. It's much easier to set the agenda if you have billionaire mates who will help you start a channel for 20 million pounds. It's much harder if you are an environmental protester and the billionaire oil barons aren't so keen on your agenda. When I mentioned that £20 million, I was talking about the seed funding um, that GB News got. I did actually, though, understate it. They got £60 million in total to start their channel. That's before they'd aired anything. If you think about the amount of hours we've put into this channel to try and get where we are, they got £60 million before they'd even um, you know, broadcast a show. And the £20 million figure that I did use, that's just what they got from Legatum. Now, Legatum is a Dubai-based investment firm. Um, Legatum was founded by the billionaire Christopher Chandler, who, among other investments, got rich trading oil. Right. Now, Aaron, I want to know what you make of that argument, because you often get asked, you know, and it's a reasonable point. I don't think it's, I don't think it's ridiculous. I think lots of people think this, and I, I think it makes some sense. They say, direct action, what you're doing is you can't get your way at the ballot box, so you're going and you know, interrupting people's lives, people's days, right? And, and and there's something sort of anti-democratic and obnoxious about that. Now, often what gets said in response is people say, well, think about the suffragettes. And then what the right wing you're debating will say is, well, the suffragettes couldn't vote. So 
it's the analogy doesn't work. These Greenpeace protesters can just vote at the ballot box like everyone else. The suffragettes couldn't. So therefore, the suffragettes are legitimate. Gandhi was legitimate. And these people aren't. You could say the same thing about Martin Luther King and the black people in the, the, the American South because they also couldn't vote. Now, in response to that, which again, I don't think is a completely unreasonable point, I do think it is this argument about who who gets to be heard in the public sphere. And you get to be heard by doing you know one of two things, really, which is getting a billionaire to fund a media organization so that you can broadcast all of your bizarre views to the world or doing something controversial, which means that someone else is going to cover your your action. I mean, what do you make of that? Michael, crucially, you missed the third one. Do you know what that is? Go on. To support people-powered media like Navarra Media by going to navarramedia.com forward slash support. That's the third one. Just saying, okay? Um, uh, what I would say, Michael, is as well, I think you let them off the hook a little bit there because in the 2019 general election, all the main parties were committed to net zero. In the 2019 Tory party manifesto, they say we will reach net zero by 2050. So this whole thing of, well, if you want net zero, go start a party and somebody can vote for it. We had that. People voted for all those parties. The point is that in a space of, what, four years? We're now having extraordinary backtracking on commitments with regards to uh, new oil and gas uh, facilities in, in the North Sea, with regards to, it seems, the prohibition on the sale of new petrol cars after 2030. God knows what's next. There's clearly a massive backtracking on the Tory party's commitments to the climate and decarbonisation on 2019. That is happening. So the idea that, well, if people cared that much about these things, they'd vote for the parties. It happened already. And so I think in that context, the political parties reneging on their promises, uh, which they make prior to an election, I think when that happens, I think that is absolutely one of the times when direct action isn't just permissible and okay, I think it should be actively encouraged. You know, another example is, of course, the Iraq war. I think personally, the protest in response to the Iraq war didn't go far enough because it had absolutely no democratic mandate behind it. Now, people can say, well, look, that's the, the, these are the power of war making resides with the executive, blah, 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 blah. It wasn't a war of self-defense. It was a war based upon, quote unquote, British values and ideals and democracy spreading. I think you probably need to go to the electorate before doing that. So I think when you so haphazardly and perniciously undermine the basis of political consent, I think it's absolutely legitimate. And I think that's the case here with the, with the Greenpeace action. You know, personally, I'm quite hesitant about big legacy NGOs doing direct action. I don't think they need to do that actually, generally speaking. Uh, I think they can focus on policymaking. Uh, I think they can influence, you know, elite opinion. They can do the press releases that, you know, goes out in broadcast and print media and let people like Just Paul and whatnot do the direct action, make the headlines, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's an interesting binary there. They can, they've chosen to do this. And like I say, I think it's entirely legitimate to do it precisely because the Tories are now reneging on their own promises. It, it's no more complicated than that. I suppose what they'd say in response to that kind of thing is that, yes, all the parties have committed to net zero, but they haven't committed and it, it didn't get put in anyone's manifesto. I mean, it might have been Labour's manifesto, but definitely wasn't in the Conservative manifesto. They wouldn't go for new oil and gas. And so if the left were to be completely honest and put in a manifesto everything which is required to get to net zero, that might be unpopular. So I do think we do need to sort of push public opinion on this so that people are on side, not just with the ambition, but also the means by which we can achieve that ambition. I think that's somewhat true, Michael, but I've heard this repeatedly, and it is really important to say this, so history is not being rewritten. Lots of people, climate skeptics, say, we were never asked, the public was never asked about net zero. 
you were repeatedly asked about net zero. And so somebody who says that in the media, who voted Tory in 2019, not only were you asked, you answered because you gave your vote to a political party who had a commitment to net zero by 2050. It's one of those classic things, Michael, where it's just a complete detachment from reality and historical events. You know, uh, the, the, the amnesia of some people, it just defies belief. It was in the debate for a very long time. Theresa May, Michael, was the prime minister in 2018 when parliament voted to pass a climate emergency. Okay, when were we asked? The party you voted for passed a climate emergency. The party you voted for gave really significant commitments in Glasgow at COP with regards to how we can mitigate climate change and, and, and decarbonize going forward. That happened. So the idea is some marginal thing being pushed by NGOs that nobody voted for and the public's never asked. It's complete bullshit. It's complete bullshit. And because people don't want to have an argument actually around the really substantive stuff, like how we can genuinely have a more abundant, prosperous economy without, uh, without fossil fuels in 10, 20, 25 years. It won't be easy to get there, but it will happen. Or, or the use of, for instance, nuclear energy. I think there's a big consensus around that, right? Probably on the left and the right, as even a, a quasi-temporary technology to reduce CO2 emissions, guarantee energy security over the next, let's say, two, three, four decades, rather than talk about the really substantive policy stuff, we have the lightweight trivia why? Because it serves certain people's interests, okay? Including people who potentially get rich out of selling fossil fuels. Final story. We've been keeping you updated about Byline Time's brilliant reporting on the allegations facing Dan Wooten. And one of his employers has been paying attention to the revelations too. Wooten has had his Mail Online column paused while they undergo an investigation into his behaviour. Dan Wooten stands accused of using fake identities to trick people into sending him explicit photos and encouraging adult entertainers to film people having sex without their consent. The male group gave this statement. The allegations are obviously serious, but also complex and historic, and there is an independent investigation underway at the media group, which employed him during the relevant period. In the meantime, his freelance column with Mail Online has been paused. The news comes as Byline have published the information which they believe confirms Dan Wooten was behind the online persona Martin Branning. Now, it was the Martin Branning character who had offered many people with connections to Wooten money for explicit content. It's also the Branning character who sent emails which have been compared to blackmail. So what is the proof, according to Byline, that Dan Wooten is um, this Branning character. So they write this. GB News star Dan Wooten twice used an identical password as the catfishing pseudonym Martin Branning and Maria Joseph to subscribe to a movie-sharing website, Byline Times can reveal. The presenter used the password along with the email addresses for his private web domain, danwooten.com, and also his official News of the World account. They were leaked and published on a publicly available data breach directory in October 2018. Alongside Wooten's two email addresses revealed in a dump of login details for over 700,000 users of the defunct film indexing service mydvd.overhere.com were the email addresses Byline Times revealed Branning and Joseph had used to trick and bribe scores of men into sharing compromising sexual material over at least a 10-year period. All four of the accounts used the same unusual eight-character password. Of course, Dan Wooden has previously denied any criminality, but never explicitly denied using the pseudonym Martin Branning. 
In the case of these accounts we've just discussed, Byline write this, Byline Times have asked the new legal representatives for Dan Wooden detailed questions about the password breaches. In response, they did not deny the connection between the four accounts and appeared to confirm that Wooden used the password for the accounts mentioned. Aaron, it's always interesting when you know an employer makes a decision about one of these cases because it means that all of the legacy media, which you know have been well, they seem to have been worried about whether to touch this story. Now the BBC, um, mirror, the Mirror, sort of websites that haven't really talked much about Dan Wooten now say, oh, Dan Wooten suspended by Mail Online, or at least his, his column has been put on pause. Um, so it gives an excuse for the legacy media to talk about it. It's a similar issue with Hugh Edwards. I mean, how significant will, will this be for Dan Wooten and for GB News, who are still standing by their man? Yeah, it's a great question, Michael. Um, and and, and you're, it's a very astute point that this is one of those hooks which allows other papers to report on a story which is ongoing, even if the person involved is particularly litigious, um, which doesn't appear to be the case with Wooten. But, you know, we, we, we don't know for sure what kind of legal advice he's getting in, in that regard. I mean, he's clearly going to go after byline, it seems. But with regards to others who are reporting on it, I mean, that, you know, it, it's, it's less clear. Um, I have to say, Michael, as well, you know, I said earlier on, you, you, you said there were two options, which is either you own, you know, a, a media company or you give tens of millions of pounds to a media company or you do direct action to get into uh, public debate. And then I said there's a third option, go uh, support Navarro Media. I have to say, add byline to that as well. You know, the, the reporting they've done here, Michael, with a very important media figure is really sensational. It is really sensational. It's making the weather on a huge story of massive public interest. And I say that because GB News are looking at being, by their own words, this came out from their top guy in the last week, they're looking by 2028 to be the number one news brand in this country. That's what they're saying. Now, given the BBC, I think that's pretty audacious and perhaps unlikely. But they, they, they could be significantly bigger than the likes of Channel 4, Sky News. Dan Wharton is their number one guy in terms of viewership right now. He's the number one guy. He's their, he's their ace in the hole. Um, and so for this kind of reporting on somebody who could be so central in the emergence of a really important new media outlet is hugely important journalism um, and shouldn't be taken lightly. And the professionalism and diligence and the legaling around this kind of stuff, second to none. And it does show you, Michael... The people at Byline, people like Navarra, are doing work that you're not really seeing from some of the older, more legacy, more august outlets out there. And it doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon. So this reporting is important. Uh, it's having legs. And I suspect we're going to hear many, many stories to come. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Let's go to one final Super Chat. 2020 Vision says, do it, Navarra, go and invade the offices of right-wing establishment organizations and question them to their faces. Proper old-school journalism. Um, we'll have to do the, um, what's it called? A risk analysis, a risk assessment of that particular strategy. I'm sure it will come up in a meeting at some point. Um, Aaron Bastani, thank you so much for joining me tonight. It's been a pleasure to spend a, another Friday evening with you. It's been too long. My pleasure, Michael. Uh, we've got Gino in for the last story. I hope you didn't hear him. Uh, but also, Michael, look, if you, if you ever want to take a break, go on a longer holiday. You know, I, I can hold the fort with Dahlia and Ash and Moya. You know, I feel bad, Michael. I had this lovely week away and, uh, you know, you're working all the hours God sends. It, 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 it seems almost unfair. I mean, I was also away last weekend, but I, I wouldn't mind a longer break. For now, anyway, we shall wrap up. Thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back on Monday for another live stream from this 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.